This is the seventh letter. Out of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in the ancient province of Asia, in the Roman Empire. And this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him or her and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, won't you help us to have hearts that are open and attentive to what you would say to us, your children, your church this morning. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher. So I pray that as I do my part to, uh, to cooperate with you and teach your word, Lord, that you would be the one who, who opens our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this one's, this one's a doozy. Arguably one of the most severe reprimands of Jesus in all scriptures. I mean, it's right up there with um, the Matthew 7 uh, where he says to, to, to those looking on, there will be some of you here today who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not do all of these various things in your name. And I'll look at you and I'll say, away from me. I never even knew you. That's, that's shocking. It's a bit, um, yeah, it's, 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 you could say it's offensive. It's like, wow, that's okay. Um, what do you do with that? I want to emphasize right at the outset that Jesus specifically says I reprove who I love. As, as abrupt or, or, or harsh or abrasive or as challenging as 
a letter like this may sound, it's how God loves his children. It's, uh, it's what the scriptures say, Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12. God disciplines those whom he loves. He'll say very hard things to us. The Bible, I would say, uh, by and large, is a book of, of encouragement. It's a book of hope. It's a book of faith. It's a book of love. It's a book of joy. And in the midst of all of that, God says some really bold things in love to his children. And I would say this is definitely that. Therefore, I'm going to do my best this morning to not overqualify the tone of the letter and, and almost sort of like take away its edge. There's something about these words that, that are shocking, deeply challenging, disturbing, one might argue. And I think that's exactly how they're supposed to be felt. Jesus is saying to his people, his church, this particular church in Laodicea, were that you either hot or cold, but you're not. You're lukewarm. And therefore, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Some translations say I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I like the King James Version. I will spew thee out of my mouth. I will spew thee. So, how is this the loving words of our Savior? How are we meant to receive this in such a way that we as God's people, his children, that we are built up? Challenged, yes, but built up that we might leave here with a greater revelation, deeper appreciation, a powerful understanding of the life, not the condemnation, not the death, not the, 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 the bow and grovel, but the life, the hope, the encouragement, the joy of following Jesus, even when we are confronted with some very severe words. What is lukewarm? Let's start there. It would seem it's some sort of metaphor. Um, but, but what exactly is he talking about? Uh, so if you read the commentaries, it would seem uh, there's, there's a bit of a consensus. All the archaeologists would say that this, this, is, this is the reference. This is the allusion. This is the metaphor. Jesus is talking to this city uh, accusing them of being lukewarm, which obviously is not a good thing. He's going to spew them. Um, but So what, what exactly is the metaphor? What makes them lukewarm? Um, and what they say is Laodicea was actually, it was, it was one of three cities that formed sort of a, 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 a tri-city urban center in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, to the north of Laodicea, you had Hierapolis, and then just southeast, you had Colossae. Hierapolis was and actually is still known for its, its incredible mineral-enriched hot springs. Apparently, they're still there today. I've, I've never been there, but it's all online. These hot springs that are rich with these minerals, and, and, and they have sort of a restorative uh, value, healing properties, 
So in the ancient days, it would say that you could go to Hierapolis and soak or drink the water from the hot springs and it would rejuvenate you. And that was to the north there. In Colossae, they were actually situated at, at, a, at a base of a mountain, the snow-capped mountain, and out of those mountains, the river Lycus would run, and right before it got to Colossae, the river actually went underground and formed this ice-cold, fresh snow water spring that the city was, was known for. If you wanted to get like the really good ice-cold bottle water, you went to Colossae. They had the cold water. And so apparently that's the, that's the metaphor. He's comparing them with it, it, Laodicea's neighboring cities, Hierapolis and their amazing mineral and rich hot springs and Colossae with their, their cool, refreshing, natural uh, mountain water, spring water. They had neither one of those things going for them. They were lukewarm. And so Jesus was like, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Now that doesn't, answer the question, like, so what was it exactly? Um, what makes God gag, if I can just put it bluntly? And we can go to the next slide. There you go. Because I'm sure that's super helpful. What makes God, God gag? What, what would compel Jesus to, to speak so um, severely? Is it sinners? Was he upset with the Laodiceans because they were simply sinful people? Hmm. Now, if anything, uh, we know that when God entered into creation, when the creator became one of us and lived among us, when Jesus walked the earth, he actually got a reputation for being the friend of sinners. It was one of the things that the religious elite were constantly accusing him of. Why, do you, why are you always eating with sinners? Tax collectors, prostitutes. It would seem like you actually like these people, like you have compassion towards broken, lost, worldly, godless people. And so is it sinners that makes God gag? The answer is absolutely not. That's not what's happening here. He's not looking at their sinful, broken state, saying, you guys disgust me, you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spew you out. That is not what's happening here. What then? This is what make God, makes God gag, and we'll see this as we read on. When his kids begin to find or seek greater joy in their toys than in the toy maker himself. We sang that this morning, God help us. When God's kids are more interested in God's stuff than God himself. This is why Jesus in verse 17 says to the Laodiceans, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Materially, the Laodiceans, they were rich. They had it going on. They had everything they needed. They had Nasty water, but everything else. They were known for, ironically, if you read the history of Laodicea, they were known for uh, the, the fine wool garments that their city produced and exported all over the Roman Empire. They were known for, um, they had a hospital in the city, and they were famous for the eye salve that they, would cre- that they created to, to, to cure 
eye problems. Um, they were an educated city. They were a trendy city. They were a cultural epicenter. They were materially very wealthy. And it would seem that because they were wealthy, they had it in their mind that they needed nothing. And Jesus' response was, hmm, is that right? Is that right? You think that because you've prospered, prospered materially, because you are wealthy, you need nothing. And he has some very strong words for them. But this is important as well. The problem with the Laodicean church wasn't that they were wealthy. That was not their problem. The fact that they had wealth was not their problem. God is wealthy. Many of God's children are wealthy. In fact, some of the earliest Christians um, were wealthy landowners. Plenty of extremely uh, well-to-do believers uh, in the history of the church and certainly in the New Testament. Their problem wasn't wealth. Their problem was their relationship with their money. Their problem was with their perspective, how they viewed and how they related to and found, found value and meaning and security, identity and use in their wealth. Jesus saw how they were relating to or aspiring to relate to their wealth, and he said, you have a major, major problem. You think you're wealthy, you think you need nothing, but in fact, you're broke. You're pitiable, you're wretched, you're naked, you're poor. You need to trade all of that in and buy from me the real wealth, gold that's been refined. In the words of Jesus, they had gained the whole world, yet forfeited their souls. They had forgotten the purpose of their blessings, and they had forgotten the surpassing value of not God's stuff, but of knowing God himself. They, it would seem, wanted their God like we want our Amazon packages just leave the box on the porch. You follow me? The Laodiceans, they seemed more satisfied in the stuff than in God himself. Just leave the package on the porch and we'll be happy, thank you. I don't want the Amazon guy to come into my house and like hang out with me. God wants to hang out with his kids. God doesn't want to just give us stuff. Not if it's going to, not if it's going to take away our attention, distract us, cause us to forget the surpassing worth of actually knowing God himself. So here's a question. How can you tell if you are lukewarm or not? What, what, what are the symptoms? What are the indicators? How can you tell if you're lukewarm or not? Because I suspect that the Laodiceans, some of them at least, if I have to imagine being there, were probably like, what? Like lukewarm, what is that supposed to mean? Like I'm, I, I'm on fire. You, you are lukewarm. 
I mean, you know, just normal, everyday human defensiveness. Like, oh, you're challenging me? You're questioning my, my, uh, my heart? You're questioning my, whether or not I really love you, Jesus? How dare you? When was the last time you, you loved me? You know, this sort of like defend, this insecure kind of defensiveness that some of you are possibly feeling right now because you kind of perhaps see where this is going. How can you tell if you're lukewarm? Um, well, there's some really, really good examples in the Gospels. Luke 18, for one. Some of you might be familiar with the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler. Um, I, we won't read through the entire story, but this, this is a, a moment when Jesus had, um, he was walking through the city and a ruler, apparently a very well-to-do ruler, came up to him and he said, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life. He, he recognized there was something utterly unique and amazing about the life of Jesus, this kingdom that he was inaugurating. And, and you kind of get the feeling like he didn't really know exactly what that was, but he wanted it. He craved it. He was hungry for it. So he approaches Jesus and he calls him good teacher, from, which from the very outset tells you a little something about where his mind's at. Oh, good teacher. Oh, very nice to meet another um, upstanding citizen. Yes. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, good? Wait, I don't know why you're bringing good into this. Uh, because only God is good. So FYI. But I'll tell you, have you kept the commandments? And he's like, absolutely. And Jesus rattles off five out of the Ten Commandments. So yeah, I've done all of these things from my youth. And Jesus is like, okay, great. Um, oh, j- just one more thing. Just very simple thing. I need you to go donate all of your wealth to the poor and then come follow me. And many of you know the story. What happened? It says that he left sad because he had a lot. He was rich. He was wealthy. He did not have a good relationship with his money. And so he left sad. That would be a classic case of a lukewarm guy. Someone who is more interested than maintaining his wealth, than actually giving it all up for the sake of following Jesus and having a part in his life, experiencing the kind of riches that he offers. Now, if you turn the page, there's another story. It involves another rich man. Anyone remember the story of Zacchaeus? Anyone go to Sunday school? There was like a whole song about it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Apparently, he, he was, it was a guy, the Bible says he was small in stature. He was, a, he was a short man. Jesus is walking through the city. Zacchaeus, who the scriptures say, this is Luke 19, the scriptures say that he was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was rich, he was wealthy. And he saw Jesus, he saw the crowd moving, and he knew that Jesus was coming, but because he was short, so he had to climb up a sycamore tree to get a view because he wanted to see this Jesus. Like the rich ruler, he, he knew there was something going on. And he knew that he wanted more. He didn't know what. He didn't even know who Jesus was or what he was actually all about, but he had to see for himself. So he climbs up the tree, and as Jesus is walking by, he stops, he looks up, and he says, he says Zacchaeus, come down, for today I'm going to hang with you in your house. 
We're gonna have a little dinner party. I'm gonna invite myself. It's gonna be great. And so it says, Zacchaeus, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Joy. From the very outset. Not sadness because he had much, but joy. He recognized that he had just encountered someone who had something that he did not have and could not get no matter how hard he tried God knows he already had it all anyway, but he still had nothing. And so when Jesus says, come with me, we're gonna have a, a dinner party at your house, it says that he received him joyfully. It goes on to say, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled and said, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, talking about Zacchaeus. There you go, that old friend of sinners. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He basically just like gave away everything. Not like I'm going to give everything back. Like, no, no, I'm just gonna give half of everything away just from the very outset, and whoever I've defrauded, not only I'm gonna pay them back, but I'm gonna give them Fourfold. I'm going to make it all right and then some. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus would be the example of um, the opposite of a lukewarm person. Instead of leaving sad, it said because of his joy, he gave away everything. Something about joy and generosity. How do you know if you're lukewarm? Two words, joy and generosity. If you don't have them, then maybe you are. Joy, joy is heaven's secret sauce. You guys know that? Um, my 10-year-old Isaac announced to me earlier this week that he, uh, he likes Burgerville's secret sauce. It's like a big deal. It's a big deal when a kid sort of graduates from just plain burger. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Plain, only plain, always plain. And now his palate has matured. And he's, he's announced to me, Papa, I love the sauce at Burgerville. He's discovered the secret sauce. You guys know joy is heaven's secret sauce. Joy. C.S. Lewis was the one, famously, who said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy. Let me read some verses to you. Matthew 13, 44, this is Jesus speaking in parable form. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sell all that he has and buys that field. This is what Peter's talking about. First Peter chapter one, verse eight, he says, you believe in him, that is Jesus. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul in his second letter to the church in Corinth, 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. I love this. He says, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace or the charis, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's bragging on the other churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us. Some translations say they begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Because of their joy, because of their joy and whatever their circumstance was, they begged us for the opportunity to give generously to the cause of Christ. There's something about sitting down to a meal with your heavenly father. Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. I want to come in and have a meal with you. This is Zacchaeus all over again. He's saying, church and Laodicea, Laodicea. I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. I wanna come in and have a meal with you. And that meal will, is the secret sauce of heaven. It's where the joy of the Lord comes from. There is no joy in simply keeping rules. There is no joy in simply forcing yourself to do what's right. There is no joy in simply doing what you ought. It's noble, it's right, it's fair, it's good. But joy... Joy flows out of intimacy with God. Joy, walking with Jesus, getting to know him. It's like finding a field with buried treasure. And once you realize who you have found, who's actually inviting himself over, you're like, forget everything. I consider everything else like rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing God. This is what Jesus offers us. Thank you. Let me, let me help, help us by, in way of a little gut check. Okay? I want to read off some statements, and I want, I want you to sort of gauge where you're at. Like, honestly, really, really honest. Where are you at? Which would you sort of associate yourself with? Number one, I feel most joyful when God is blessing me. Versus, I feel most joyful when I'm reminded of how blessed I am as a beloved child of God. Here's another one. I am most content when it feels like God is blessing me or giving me what I think I need. Versus, I've learned the secret to contentment. Whether enjoying abundance or suffering and need, I am blessed. I'm rich in soul and my joy overflows into generosity. Generosity. 
one more. And these are actually questions. Question number one, how much joy does giving bring you? Abundance. Okay. Now, before you say too much more, it's a trick question. How much joy does giving bring you? You know, there is such thing as like philanthropic happiness. Does it feel good to give? Absolutely. Whether you've got a little or a lot, there's something very satisfying um, about just giving to others, helping others. It's called philanthropic happiness. It's good. It's great. No problem. Here's another question. How much does your joy bring you to give? That's the question. How much joy does giving bring you? Versus, how much does your joy bring you to give? The second question is truly a better question. It is the question. It's the gut check. It's, you want to know if you're lukewarm or not? The question isn't like, how much joy do you get from giving? <laughs> look, look, let's be real for a second. <laughs> giving kind of stings sometimes. So my wife and I, we give to our local church. We've always done that. We've always done that. It's just, I, I don't know. I'm the grace of God, I guess. Like I, how, how it is that like, we thought that would just be a good idea is beyond me. I mean, honestly, it's like, it's like a revelation. But God gets a hold of your heart. And you realize, man, I'm rich. Like, I've been adopted into the family of God. My heavenly father owns everything. And it does something to you. It changes the way you think. It changes the state of your heart. You stop clinging to your stuff. You stop constantly thinking about how am I going to get more? And you realize like, what do you more? How much more do I need? Obviously I got to pay my bills. I got to, you know, I've got to feed my kids. You know, I got to think about the future and all that super important and wise and perhaps like a whole nother sermon. Right? But you begin to see the stuff you have as stuff to be used for the glory of God. You know, after the Zacchaeus moment, you know what the very next parable is? It's the parable of the 10 minus. It's no coincidence. Jesus immediately begins to tell the story about these people, these managers, that, that a rich owner entrusted money to. A minus is about three months wage. M-I-N-A-S, minus. And he says he gives them this money and some of them actually invest it. They use it to like build up the family business, to, to do things with it, to please their master. And then one of the guys, he basically just takes his minus and he buries it into the ground. He does nothing with it. He just kind of hoards it. He, he just clings onto it. And then the master comes and he says, okay, guys, show me what you've done with the money I've entrusted to you. How did you invest it? How did you use it for the reason I gave it to you in the first place? And he, it's, it's like every guy that comes along says, man, I, I did this, I invested it in this way, I used it, and look, it, I've made more money for you. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And when it comes to the last guy who did nothing with it, but just kind of hoard it to himself, 
He said, man, what are you doing? You've forgotten the whole reason I blessed you in the first place. It wasn't for you to cling on to. It was for you to use the business, the family business I've come to seek and to save the lost. I want to see my church built up. I want to see the poor fed. I want to see widows and orphans provided for. I want you to be my body, my hands and feet, salt and light. I want to see my kingdom come crashing into dark places and everything that I've given you is a stewardship to be used for those purposes. And when Jesus has got a hold of your heart, you realize like, man, the stuff that I either have or I'm desperately trying to get, it's... um. It's simply meant to be used. And the joy, the joy of knowing God, like being an adopted son or daughter, it compels one towards generosity. Giving always stings a little bit. I'm not gonna lie, be like, I feel the happiest when I'm like giving a massive chunk of my income to anyone, the church or otherwise. Am I a cheerful giver? Yes. Not because I'm giving, but because I'm born again, because God has poured his spirit into my heart. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm in the family. I've been saved. And that joy compels us. Let me close with a story. Um, forgive me if you've heard this one. I don't think I've told it here. When I was growing up, I, um, I used to play in different bands. I think I was a bit of punk rock. I thought I was a bit punk rock. And so we had this little punk rock band, this little garage band. I was the bass player. Um, Chris Miller was the, the lead vocals. Dad Kiggins was the drummer. And uh, Byron Rush, he was our guitar player. Byron Rush, he he became a Christian in high school. There was just like this little Methodist youth group that he got connected with. And he was obviously determined to just get the whole band to, to get saved, essentially. Um, and uh, somehow he managed to arrange for us, our little punk rock band, to be the, the worship band for this youth retreat in Santa Cruz one summer. And so they had a little generator out there. We were out in the woods. And every morning, we'd have this little worship session. We learned all these Jesus songs. And none of us were Christians except for Byron. But he was super motivated. So we did it, right? And um, it was great. We even wrote a song called Funky Jesus. And it opened with a skit. We actually wrote a skit. And I was, I was the main character. And, and the, sort of the climax of the skit, would like, like, I was sitting down. I was depressed or something. And someone asked me a question, and then, like, the, the, the big one-liner was like, man, he's my funky Jesus. And then I would stand up, and we would, like, break out of this song called Funky Jesus. We were kids. So, fast forward, like, 20 years later, I was just, like, getting into full-time campus ministry. I'd become a Christian while I was at university on my campus, and I, uh, I was raising... Money. I was raising my own salary so I could be a full-time missionary. 
pretty, pretty nerve-wracking, but it, it's what I was doing. And, and so I was trying to, like, network with all these people. And I was trying to meet all these people, like, you know, from my youth group back in the day. And, you know, this person and that person. And somehow I sort of found my way all the way back to the leader of this youth group that I was a part of. His name was Jim Petty. Turns out Jim Petty was the president and an owner, co-owner of Petty Grow Automotive, the biggest Ford dealership in the town I grew up in. So I'm thinking to myself, like, dude, Petty's got, got cash. Like, not Tom Petty, Jim Petty. And so I scheduled this meeting with them, thinking, like, this is going to be a great meeting. Like, I better not screw it up. And so I go into this big, big dealership. And uh, everyone's, you know, it's like I'm in the office. Everyone's in suit and ties. And I'm sort of escorted to the, the, the main office, the president's office, Jim Petty. And I walk in and immediately Jim jumps up. I was thinking he wouldn't even remember me. He totally remembered me. And he says, Simon, what's going on? He was excited. He was enthusiastic, totally not dressed like the president of a major like car lot, like in jeans and a t-shirt. His, his office was plastered with Polaroids of teenage kids. And he's like, hang on, hang on. And he's looking, there you are. I was, I, he had a picture of me and our band on his wall. And he was like, dude, Simon, what's up, funky Jesus? <laughs> and he starts to sing funky Jesus. I'm like, Jim, like, you're out of your mind. Like, how did you remember that? And he's like, how am I going to forget it? Like, it's, it's my greatest honor to have, like, been a youth minister for all those years. It was like a little part-time gig. And, uh, and so we talk, and I'm like, well, Jim, I'll just cut right to the chase. I'm trying to be a missionary, and this is my whole story, and I'm trying to raise money. I have to raise my own salary, and, and can you give me some money, essentially? And he says, Simon, I'm just going to be super upfront with you. The answer is no. Um, but I want to tell you why, because I think what you're doing is amazing. I believe in it 100%, but it's no because all of my money is already accounted for. And he said, and I'll tell you this just in a way of encouragement. This is something that the Lord has, has really helped my wife and I over the years. But this past year, my wife and I gave, gave away 100%, 100% of our income. We were able to live on our end of the year bonus. And we're just, it's just so amazing. It's like the best thing ever. And he's just like brimming with joy. We gave away 100% of our income. And he's like, but I tell you what, tell you what. So that's where we're at. So I'm not going to give you any money. Um, it's all gone. But I will take you out to lunch. I'm like, okay, great. So we get in his old beat up van. And uh, we start driving. And guess where we go? Taco Bell. So we go to Taco Bell. We pull up. He doesn't even order. He's like, you like burritos, right? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm thinking, like, this is kind of weird, dude. Like, Taco Bell, come on. Drive through nonetheless. So we pull up to Taco Bell. He doesn't say anything. And the, the person at the window, hey, what's up, Jen? Starts handing him bag after bag after bag after bag. And he's, like, loading up this ice chest in the middle, like, in between the, the two front seats. It must have been, like, 100 burritos. And he's like, cramming on there and I don't ask I'm just thinking like okay this is getting interesting <laughs> what is happening right now we drive off and we end up driving up into the parking lot of my old high school like super weird what, what is going on we get out of the van he doesn't say anything I don't ask anything it's like one of these little ice chests on wheels right he's pulling me out we walk through the, the main office. Hey, what's up, Jim? Good to see you. It's Wednesday, whatever. Like, go on, go on through. So I'm like, okay, I'm with Jim. And we go right into the middle of the campus, sit down just in time for the lunch bell to ring and kids start pouring out. 
we are swarmed. We are engulfed by high school kids. Hey, what's up, Jim? Hey, what's up, Jim? And every time someone would say, what's up, Jim? He would hand them a burrito and then like, like say hi to them by name. And he's just like, burrito, burrito, burrito. Hey, what's up, Sam? Hey, what's up, Becky? Is that a burrito, burrito, burrito? I'm just like, man, what is this? This is super weird. And so we were talking to these kids and he's encouraging them. Hey, what's going on? Like, oh, hey, how's your mom doing? And we prayed for that. Okay, great. Like, oh, yeah, I'll see you at youth group. Like, not overtly, like, you know, evangelism going on. Obviously, it's a public campus. But just relationship, connecting, blessing these kids. And then at the end of it, everyone goes to class. I'm like, Jim, what is going on? Like, what is this? And he says, Simon, this is what I do. This is what I do. I have a different campus that I hit four days out of the week. And I load up on burritos and I just go connect with kids. I just bless them. I get to know them. And he starts to tell me stories about how he's led all these different kids to Jesus over the years. This is Burrito Jim. <laughs> Guys, this is a man who has been captivated by the joy of knowing God. This is a man who understands what it is to once be lost and then found. This is a guy who realizes everything that I've been given, it's meant to be used to bless others. That's why God blesses us. That's why God entrusts us with money so that we can be blessed and so that we can be a conduit and extension of his blessing. Guys, lukewarm is wasting your time hoarding a burrito when God wants to fill up your ice chest. It's that burrito gym lifestyle. That's what Jesus promises us. And it all flows out of joy. Not do this and then maybe you'll have a bit of momentary philanthropic happiness. Like join my kingdom, come down from there Give up everything and come eat with me. Come commune with me. Come experience the joy of knowing and walking with your creator. Come and experience his true and eternal riches in this life and the life to come. Everything else that you think might give you what you're looking for, man, you're settling for a burrito. Taco Bell, nonetheless. It's like the enemy waving that single piece of fruit in front of you. You like that little shiny piece of fruit? You like that? I'll trade you this apple. All I ask for in return is your soul. The enemy says, take this apple. God is offering us the entire garden. Can we stand together, please? Who wants that burrito gym lifestyle? You know, it does require uh, a step of faith slash obedience. Jesus said, I'm knocking on the door. I'm here. Isn't it funny, last week, Jesus like attempts to kick the door in. And he says, look, I opened the door and no one can show. I got the key of David. This week, this letter, he says, look, I'm knocking at the door. But you've got to open this door. I'm not going to kick my way in. You need to respond. And what does he say? Repent. 
and be zealous. Repent, such a beautiful word. Let go of whatever it is you think makes you rich. And some of you, you're not rich yet, but you think that if I get there, then, then I'm gonna I'll have everything I need. And I believe that Jesus would say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wretched. You're pitiable. You're broke. Don't waste your time. Give up everything and come follow me. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about that. That's real. But you want to be rich? What you're really looking for is joy. That's what you're really looking for. I got that burrito gym lifestyle. But you need to repent and open that door. Took up all my time talking about that building. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.